Welcome to the Story Paths podcast. I'm Theodore Lowry. Have you ever walked into a supermarket and wondered about the stories behind the food there on the shelf? What's the story behind those corn chips, behind the land and the farmers and the relationship of the seeds of the particular varieties of corn? with the people who tended them over generations? Ever wondered how we might begin to bring in story into our food, our clothes, and fuel these various anonymous things that come to us, that we depend on, but which we only have a relationship with right at the end when they appear close to us or only know the story of them when they appear close. Well, today we get into this. My guest is Tad Hargrave. He's known for his business marketing for hippies, but in the capacity here today that I'm speaking with him, he's coming as a student of myth, a student of Celtic language, of Scottish Gaelic in particular, and Scottish ancestral songs and stories. Tamara Strijek and Rebecca Wall also chime in with some questions and thoughts. Tad speaks about the differences between spell and story, the relationship between story and culture, the importance of using words like story and narrative for true stories, true narratives, and not mixing the waters by using them for advertising sequences and such. That story is not a word for something made up, but for something which is true in a deeper sense. And so, without further ado, I bring you this conversation. I've chosen to just give this to you straight without any music in it. I think it fits better that way. See you on the other side. I'm sitting here with Tad Hargrave and Tamara Strijak, and I think Rebecca Wall may be joining us as well. So, Tad. He's known for marketing for hippies, his day job, and he's also very interested in mythology and storytelling. I know him uh, from amongst other places, from his telling of stories in a lovely yurt in the town of Duncan, where he'll speak these old Scottish tales, and then together we will gradually find our way into these deeper and deeper levels. Because often when you first read these stories, they seem like these quirky old tales. And turns out there's a heck of a lot there. And that there's a heck of a lot there in traditional stories and traditional story culture, the culture surrounding the stories. So thank you for coming, Tad. Thank you, Tamara. And I'm going to have a lively round interview here. 
So I wanted to ask you, Tad, about the importance of story in culture and the loss of story and culture, and then to move into what we can do from our situation to bringing story back into culture. So perhaps we could start for you, the way you think of it and speak of it, what is story? Oh boy. <clears throat> well, I suppose story is uh fundamentally one of the ways that culture is is uh, practiced and enacted and the questions you asked you said you know um you know what is this relationship of story and culture what's uh <clears throat> the loss of story and culture and i would i would tweak the question a bit or the formulation in that um, if you lose story, it's not culture anymore. By the time there's no, um, by the time there's no story, a something's happened, uh, and b something will happen as a result. And I don't know if we can call it culture. To me, culture is people willing to live, you know, abiding by the limits of the place that they're in, <clears throat> by the the limits of being human. And that, that creates a, an immense amount of grief. Uh, that's not easy. To just be willing to be limited uh, in, a, in a modern society, especially where, where limits are for chumps. Limits are to be transcended, gotten over. And, and that's the whole gig of civilization, is um, to get past the limits. And, you know, machines and all manner of things are employed. <clears throat> but of course, if you're going to try to trump the limits of the place you're in, we're just we're moving into the realm of, of violence and um, harm and, and uh, exploitation. And so how do you deal with this as, as, a, as humans? This, the kind of psychic toll of having a toll on the place that you're in and maybe the people whose land you've just taken. I think the way that you cope with that is you have to start casting certain spells, spells like, well, humans are more important than the natural world anyway. So of course we should take from the natural world, what we want. And also this type of human is better than that other type of human. So it's appropriate that we would take their things. So we have to, we have to engage in spell casting instead of storytelling. And so if we find ourselves without story uh, in our lives, then I think we could safely say we, we have already found ourselves without culture. Mm, thank you. You want to speak a, a little bit about how you're using the word spell and how you're using the word story? Yeah, in brief... To me, story is a way of making the world more available to people. And spellcasting is a way to hide the world, to make sure that you never actually see the world the way it is. So if I say to somebody, you're ugly, uh, especially as a child, and especially if they're more um, 
prone to be on the receiving end of spells because uh, some kind of neglect or trauma or they're scared and in that state their their psyche is kind of open at another level and then I say you're ugly spell you go right in and the rest of their life and isn't it amazing I mean you know you hear about these supermodels you know people who it'd be hard to deny that they're physically attractive but they feel ugly their whole life um so even when the the whole society is reflecting to them this message you're beautiful it doesn't land for them or you're stupid when they clearly have a genius or you you can't sing but they have a beautiful voice or you're fat yeah and anorexia and all this you can you can literally look in the mirror you can see yourself you can see everyone else would say you are skin and bones and we're concerned and you see that you're fat so this is the consequence of spell casting uh, so that's at the personal level but at the societal level I mean, it's just, you don't have a civilization without so many concussive layers of spells being cast. Because otherwise you, you couldn't, we couldn't bear it. It'd be so hard to bear. Um, the grief would just flood in. And for many of us, it has, of course, as you start, we start to wake up to the story of what's really happened and what's happening. Um, <clears throat> boy, that's, that's cause for, for almost endless grief. Thank you. I know you've object to the use of the word story to refer to things like, you know, this is the greatest country on earth, uh, or the narrative of the left or the right, that these words narrative and story, I've heard you object to them being used in this way to wanting to reclaim them for the realm of true storytelling. You want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I noticed it first in the um, personal growth scene, this uh, coach is helping people get over their stories. Mm. But when people say, oh, that's a fairy tale, they're not saying, oh, that's the repository of great cultural wisdom. They're saying that's not true. Mm. Uh, that's a myth. Uh, you know, here's the myth and here's the truth. You'll see that in in uh, various articles. and Mythbusters. Right, exactly. Mm. Um, that it's, um, and then we see, uh, right. This is the narrative and narrative has become synonymous with spin. So narrative equals, it's not really true, but it's the thing they want you to believe. And I mean, I, I was talking with a friend about spells and she objected to my use of the word spells. And she was like, well, you know, there's I think in the 1400s, that's the first time it was used in this negative way, but it just meant the power of the word maybe before that and spelling. Uh, you know, literally spelling words and literacy and the, the, probably the sounds that we make. And I don't, I don't object to that. I mean, I do understand. And I don't, it's not that I think spells are bad and stories are good, but I think they are particular somethings. And there are times when not having something that gives you a bit of an escape from looking at reality is probably really welcome. And we've all done that in our lives and had certain things that helped us numb out to the overwhelming pain. So I'm not, I'm not against it. I'm just not going in with the idea that they're the same thing. Uh, and that story equals uh, untrue and, and, and false. 
or or sort of surface when for most of the history of humans it meant the exact same thing the shift of story meaning untrue that's brand new for humans for the vast majority of our history i mean michael mead talks about it the idea that a story is a way of telling the truth without resorting to facts Um, that stories are not necessarily even things that happened but things that are always happening and of course i'd quibble with that to say a lot of these things that we thought were just stories culturally often have a lot of historical fact in it that we only find out later heard about one place in japan and they said oh there's this kingdom under the sea and people knew where it was but of course it's just a fictional fantastical uh fabulous you know the word fabulous too from fabulum you know story is um that's all it is and then of course the submarines go down one day and they find this kingdom there and it was really there so even at that level i think there's a lot more historical accuracy to these stories uh than we may have previously thought but yes i do object to um story being synonymous with untrue we were speaking earlier about two different ways of teaching you could say you asked a, a man uh in Scotland about the difference between how morality was taught in churches compared to how it was taught in the older ways and do you want to speak a, a, about that tell that story yeah, i'd love to is, get into that contrast this is uh, george mcpherson storyteller storyteller from uh, glendale on the isle of skye and he you know received the tradition orally from his grandfather and and uh i asked him one day i said yeah, what's the difference between how the christians promulgated ethics and the church versus traditional gaelic more druidic values and he said well it's not that different the main difference the values aren't so different don't don't cheat on your wife don't steal people's stuff don't um be mean to people you know there's it's not so different but the main difference was how they were conveyed and that in the church it tended to be conveyed with a very explicit overt here's the rules and don't break them and a real imposition of those rules whereas with storytelling maybe somebody caused some harm or some damage or did something untowards in the community and as a first move maybe instead of confronting them they would that night around the fire the storyteller might tell a story that was aimed at that person but might not even look at the person and then he said you know over the next couple of weeks the story would then work on you and they would consider it and they would, the story would roll around in their mind and they would all willing come to their own conclusions and just that that's a better deal because we get into this old uh dynamic with humans of when things are imposed we tend to feel like we only have two choices we can submit or we can rebel so if you submit you just give in and even though you don't really agree with it you're willing to go with it uh there's a kind of collapse and there's some shame and yes i'll i'll go with it and then re- there's just open rebellion no i won't do what you tell me and of course if you're in a position of power it would seem like well rebellion is the one you don't want and obedience that's the thing you want and if we can just hellfire and brimstone the obedience into them then that's good but part of the challenge with this is if you 
have people submit and they um, collapse, you don't just collapse the part of them surrounding the behavior you want. It's kind of a whole system collapse. There's a denigration of self-respect that happens. If, if people can get you to do something that you know is not true, if they can get you to say this is Orwell's 2 plus 2 equals 5, if they can get you to say that publicly, there's a loss of self-respect and self-esteem. Um, there's this idea that, well, collapse is more noble. You know, being a, a, a troublemaker and a rebel, that's bad. But if you follow the rules, then that's good. And that collapse is more noble. But um, I would submit that so many atrocities in the world have happened primarily not because of the tyrants, but because of a collapsed, obedient population that just went with it, that didn't fight back, that didn't rebel, that didn't stand up, or didn't just proceed otherwise. I mean, it doesn't even take rebellion, because even rebellion centers the person in power. It's still in reaction to them, defined by them on their terms. Mm -hmm. And you could have a tyrant say we're going to do this atrocious thing and everyone looks and says that's very sweet of you big ideas you have uh we're not going to join you yeah i heard about one oh i wish i could remember where but it was a native american tribe somewhere i think southern united states but their deal was you could anyone could declare war on anyone at any point they wanted you could declare war on another tribe totally fine uh, but no one had to go to war with you. You had to persuade them to go. And so there were stories of people going by themselves to war against another tribe because no one would join them. You had to persuade people to do it. They had to, of their own free will, say yes and join. Because the understanding was if you coerced people or forced people into something, uh, this is, is not good news. I mean, hey, you got people in an initiative then who aren't really wholehearted, and this is where things start to fall apart. Not everybody's on the same page, and then the cracks start to show, uh, and then the whole initiative will fall apart. And a lot of us have lived through that uh, with various organizations or projects we've been a part of, where it was going good because everyone was just obeying the loudest, most charismatic person in the room. But they hadn't come to that in their own way. And so it doesn't last. It's like, um, I could, you could imagine it, and this ties into spells as well. You know, spell casting is a road, and storytelling is a trail. The more you walk on a trail, the more trailish it becomes. The consequence of using the trail is more traily. You know, more trailishness is there. It just deepens. And uh, roads, on the other hand, the more you drive on them, because they are for driving, uh, they break down. And so they have to be repaved. And that's what it's like to live in modern society. It starts to break down the spells that we're under because you have human moments. You have moments of realization. And there's this thought, wait, should we be living this way? This is crazy. I'm a single mother raising my kids and there's something about this is nuts. And then maybe you hear a story about another culture and how they raise their kids. And it's so different. And you hear stories about how they treat mothers right after giving birth. And you think, I never had that. And you go to somebody's wedding and it's this outrageous cultural affair. And you're like, well, that's better than the 15 minute wedding I had. You know, you start to see examples mm -hmm. and, and the, the, this loses its luster. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the hardships of living in a modern civilization for all the, the economic 
privilege and wealth it gives uh, many who live in it. The cultural, spiritual poverty is so damning. Mm -hmm. So then the road starts to break down. And so that's then the propaganda machines roll, rolls right back out. You know, you think of the Truman Show. He's starting to question his reality. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's something outside of this edifice that I live in that he doesn't even know the parameters of or the edges of. And as soon as they feel that he's starting to doubt, oh boy, the propaganda, come, you know, there's those newspaper articles, our town's the best place to live in in the world. And, and it comes on really thick. And of course, for most people, that just puts people right back to sleep. They have a question, and then they're reassured by the experts. Um, and, you know, back to sleep they go. But some people don't, and they start to question. And, um, you know, all willing, the road crumbles. Stephen Jenkinson makes the good point when they talk about road improvement. Oh, we're going to improve the roads. It's never that they're going to tear up the roads. That's never the improvement. The improvement always equals repaving and smoother. And, you know, that the, the trail is made by and also serves the foot. There's all the research you can get into about, you know, feet and all of our friends wearing their, you know, their funky earthing shoes and their you know, vibrams and and uh, walking barefoot and is better for the foot. One of the greatest disasters for human health was those the shoe. I mean, one, because it disconnects us from the earth with the rubber sole, but also it, you know, narrows our foot and it... Um, affects the whole structure of our foot which then ripples all the way up the body but if you walk barefoot as most of our ancestors did on trails which are uneven you can't go so fast on a trail uh and there's a variety so all the muscles in the foot again i'm not an expert um but they they serve the foot and the hoof and the claw and on but roads serve the wheel and you know you could really tie the wheel to um it's it's uh once the wheel appears well empire is uh nearby it's not necessarily guaranteed to show up but it's it's suddenly a neighbor um and what the wheel wants is different than what the foot wants the wheel wants smooth and straight and so now we're changing the landscape too because the trail obeys the contours of the land but the road I mean, uh, in uh, in Ireland and, and Wales and England, when they were putting in the roads, they called it making grade because the, if it was for the trains. And the, the wheels couldn't take a lot of um, angle of ascent, the, you know, the spin, and you wouldn't be able to go very far. So it had to just be flat, which meant blasting through bedrock, which meant literally changing the landscape around it so that the train could get where it wanted to go faster. Um, so yeah, the road serves the wheel, the track serves the wheel and it serves speed and convenience and ease. And if that starts to break down, well, we have to fix it because we have to keep this machine going. Yeah. It feels like what you're, you're talking about here is this whole disconnect that happens. And once it starts happening, how do you how do you get back on track? How do you get back on actually not on track, but off track, right? How do we get back to the paths? And there was something you said earlier that really just sat with me here. Um, and, and I was kind of integrating everything you said from that point of the, that stories work on us. 
And then you you said some other words, you know, the wholehearted and and the the, the connection. It's there's a sense of integrity in being able to um, have the context of story. There's a sense of, um, you know, I think back to discussion around intuition, right? How we've lost our intuition, our sense of what's true for us. And when we lose that place, that's where we are susceptible then to these messages to, you know, like in the Truman show, there's, there's, there's a sense of him not knowing what is true. And, and there's not a, so coming from a more solid place in us. And I, I come back to that, that place about the teaching, right? Where it's when we're told this is what you must do. And then we either comply or we, we object, it doesn't land in us in that way that story does because it story allows it to go deeper to this place of intuition. And I, I think about that in, in terms of being the word natural or unnatural. And it's like, it takes us to that path versus the road where the road, we just only have two solutions. We break it apart or we fix it. We, it, it's not about creating a new path or, or, finding a new way or finding our way back to the original way. Well, so on that, um, same example, uh, different way of looking at it. Let's imagine that the, the trails, and I use the word trail and not path. Um, I read a book called On Trails about hiking. I don't know why. The cover was good. It was given to me by a friend. I, I have no uh, particular interest in hiking uh, I'm baffled that people want to do it, <laughs> but I, I read this book and he made the case. He said, the path is what's ahead of you. The trail is what you leave behind you, mm. right? You think about when a, a, a snail is moving and it leaves that little trail behind it. And, um, also it's worth noting the kinship between trail and track and travel and tram and train and traips yeah this tra at the beginning and oh boy the the etymology if i'm remembering right and this is from uh, uh there's an amazing book on the etymology of the, of the letters of the indo-european alphabet and what they mean and if i recall correctly and i may have this wrong but the t symbolizes the movement of light across the sky this this sound and then the r is this winding motion like river and rhythm and ritual and so when you put it together you have this sort of winding motion uh, across the sky or you know across the land and you can you could take any word in the english language or any language i say and you, if you go back to what did that word originally mean, you often find that the modern meaning is completely different than the archaic meaning. Uh, something has changed so fundamentally. And you could trace the whole shift of modern society through the change of that word. And so if we do it with, um, and I'm talking a little fast and loose here because I, I haven't looked at this in a while. But, <clears throat> you know, just to spark uh, looking into this is you have originally this 
trail. And what that represented was something made by the, the feet. <clears throat> and originally, not humans, originally animals, that most of the trails that we, uh, you know, they were found by humans because the animals knew where to get water, where to get food. And so they would have their walking trails and then humans start using those. And then maybe eventually the animals are sort of pushed out. Humans take over those trails. But still, <clears throat> they were made by the animals. And, uh, you know, the younger the younger uh, siblings of humans show up and they start using them. But then a couple things happen. One is they need to maybe widen them a little bit because now they've got these wheels and they've got the cart and it's not going to fit through this narrow trail so they have to they have to widen them a little bit and then you start making towns around them and uh then there's a certain point the traffic gets maybe a little too much on those uh, and this is where the super highways come because you got to reroute the traffic uh, not through town but and people have looked into this in all sorts of places that many of the original major roads in in the bigger older cities were trails so originally they were animal trails that turned into human trails that then became the roads of the city so what is this saying it's saying that some of the dominant arteries of modern society are covering up these older trails okay so then if intuition is a trail it means it's still there it means it's covered it means it's so utterly present in the landscape, but in this paved over way. And all of its wrinkles and up and down have been sort of smoothed out, but it's still uh, present. And so then there's a lot of memory work to do and a lot of unearthing of wait, what's under this road. And it's a, it's a worthwhile question in modern society of what's under this thing. What happened? What's the story of this one? What is it that underwrites the existence of this? Whatever it is, you know, we had um, breakfast this morning and uh, we had some eggs and we had some corn tortillas and, you know, tomatoes and some peppers and onions and salt and all of those ones have story. And in a traditional culture, you would know the story of all of them. You would know the person who made the tortillas because it was probably you, uh, but maybe you bought them or got them at the local market. But you know where the tortillas come from, and you probably even know where that corn was grown. And then you know the whole process of making the tortillas too, from the growing. But you also, at a larger level, know the story of corn spiritually. You know the myths and, and tales mm -hmm. about corn. So when that tortilla is sitting there on your plate, it's all there. And so you're being fed not just by the food, but you're being fed by the story and in a time where we're so bereft of meaning so much of the meaninglessness is it has no meaning meaning it has no context it doesn't make sense and why does it make no sense because there's nothing that's connected to it's just sitting there as a lonely tortilla by itself and it doesn't occur to us that i don't know the story of this one um because we don't know the story of almost anything you know, ourselves and our old timers included. And we don't know, we don't have that storying instinct anymore. Uh, or, or let me say, it's so, it's paved over. It's so utterly still there. 
but it's paved over and some part of us knows you know uh, there's a kind of bone memory of there's something underneath here hmm. yeah 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 thank you it makes me think of this this word story and the many many meanings of it uh, like you say there's the story of corn you know people who have a long relationship with corn they'll have a sense of the being of corn and how corn and humans came to be together uh, there's the story of the world there's the story of you know many many beings in the world there's the story of one's own family and then within that there's the story of going to the market and and getting the corn or growing the corn or you know trading with your neighbor like that so it's it's really being nested within stories and this is true with you know with fuel and with uh electricity and with just about anything that comes into our homes businesses and vehicles and so on but it feels like food is for me at least uh one of the strongest most most apparent ones uh, you know, to go to a grocery store and, you know, the corn chips, they're, they're wrapped in plastic bags. And, you know, the animals in the shop, it would be difficult to tell which one's which. Certainly, yeah, where they came from or any, any of that. Uh, you know, where there would have been harvest festivals, there's no, not harvest festivals. Um, where there would have been some beholding an animal before a person killed the animal, there's no beholding. It's, it's done by machines. So it's, it's a long way, you know, and fueling the car is the same sort of thing. It's, things seem to pop into existence. You know, you get, I get that sense going to a grocery store. It's like, it's kind of like it all just teleported onto the shelves. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's almost no background to it in terms of the materiality of the food and also the larger cultural context. Yeah, and story holds us, doesn't it? You know, I, I, I heard that story about Merlin from you, that he became discombobulated after a battle, became mentally deranged, and Taliesin came, found him, and told him the story of the world all the way from the beginning until the present moment. And he he gave him a place to fit everything together. So it seems like that happens on an individual level, people trauma in their lives, and then see it happens on a societal level as well with this yeah loss of loss of culture loss of meaning um science and scientism attempts to fill the gap um and it, and it has its own benefits as well but it, it can't it can't fill that gap it doesn't have those it denies personhood at every turn and stories so much about personhood you know the idea of the person of the corn or like that science oh it's superstition so it's like there's got to be personhood, and I think that's something with with science perspective, scientism. It's denying personhood at every turn, and that's that's going to be harmful. So I want to bring us into restoring and reculturing. Uh, there, there's much more to be said on the condition we're in and, and how we got here. At this point in the interview, I'd like to bring us into things we can do in our lives to bring some of that story back. And I just want to put out first as well that it can be really uncomfortable uh, to sit in that, 
you know, to go to the grocery store and, okay, that's where I get my food and just sit in this, like, I am culpable in this atrocity and, and, and my food is, is related with violence exported throughout the world. The way I move around is exported, it, violence. So to sit in that can be really difficult. It can be blame, can be really easy to, like, who can I, who can I unload this discomfort on? which is, I think, what blame is. I've got a buildup of discomfort. I want to unload it on somebody. So it's going to be difficult to sit with this condition we're in and not try to find a quick solution. Uh, yes, and I'd like to open that question to all of you. Start with you, Tad. What are things we can do to bring in, like, restoring our relationship with food may be a good place to start? Sure. Well, even before that, I feel like in your question, there's a sort of implied well of, uh, and I think for a lot of people, there's the sense of the reason we don't want to look at the story is, I mean, deeper than just discomfort is there's shame and the, the culpability equals guilt equals I'm a bad person equals I deserve to be punished. So that's just one of the first things to keep the eye on is why don't we look at the story? We know. We got, most of you live in this modern world. We have some sense about what sweatshop labor is about and factory farms. And that's not... Um, most people have some sense that certainly the things that arrived to them had some violence involved. It's hard to imagine people not uh, these days not having any sense of that. And But we don't want to look at it. And what is it that has it be so hard to look at and to look at the story? And I would submit the thing that makes it so hard to look at it is uh, are some spells. This, you know, there's the story of Briar Rose where um, she, um, ah, well, there's a whole, there's a longer story, but uh, basically a spell is cast uh, on uh, this whole kingdom. And they fall asleep for a hundred years. And around the kingdom, there grows this briar hedge. And people for a hundred years try to get in, but they're impaled on the thorns. And so, you know, it's littered with the skeletons of all the princes that tried to get in to, to win the hand of the sleeping princess and wake her up. And so I think spells are a lot like that. They, they have a defense mechanism to them. And it's not easy to get past them even when they're clearly hurting us. But so I would say there's so many spells of the spell of a kind of a, a binary thinking of right and wrong and good and bad and heaven and hell. And um, there's so many of those spells. And once you're under them, boy, it's almost impossible to get out because the, the defense, you try to get in there to, to, wake up the kingdom to restore some sanity to wake up the older story we could imagine that that briar hedge is the pavement and the trail is the kingdom so you think well easy enough we just go in and we just wake up the the princess and we wake up the kingdom and and life will return well good luck good luck getting through and not getting impaled as as many of us have discovered when you talk to your friends who you think are under some sort of spell and you just try, you, you let, lift it so gently. I was just wondering if you'd be willing to reconsider. And uh, there's a, 
volcanic response uh, if you try to that and that's one of the ways I would say you know it's a spell and not a story is the reaction you get when it's challenged a story is is immensely inclusive I think uh, very welcoming of more story because the story knows there's just always more story so so there's that but Right, because if we're going to restory, we have to look at the fact that there's so little story. And if we can't even look at that, there's no restoring that's going to happen. Or we try to restory in a, in a way that's not so honest, uh, that, that dekes the bigger story uh, of all the harm. And, and we try to avoid the central issue. So but some things that we can do, there's two things that occurs to me. One, just pick one thing you love to eat, your favorite thing to eat. And really trace the story of it. Where does this one come from? Um, can you trace it to the which farm or farms does it come from? Uh, or which factory farm does it come from? Can you learn about that farm and their practices? Mm-hmm. You could start there. But you could, you know, it, it's... This also is... It's. I don't think it's intellectually honest to stop there. Then you could say, okay, so I like beef. Boy, I love a good steak. Okay, and the beef I get, oh God, it's all coming from Costco and that comes from these factory farms. And so you call up Costco and which farm, which factory farm is it? Where do you get most of that? This particular ribeye that I love so much. Okay, it's mostly from this. So then you research that company. And then there's a lot of directions you could go. Wait, where did that company come from? Where did it begin? Probably didn't begin as a factory farm. Or maybe it did. Or who owns this company too? And what's the story of that company? Of course, you know, uh, a lot of people do this. It's the old journalistic follow the money. Mm. And you start to realize, oh, a lot of these companies are owned by the same. I mean, if people want to be horrified, just start researching who owns all the organic brands that you love. Mm. And you will find Coca-Cola and you will find Nestle and you will find uh, Clorox and on and on. And then if you look at who owns those companies, of course, you get to Vanguard and BlackRock at the end of the day. And there's two companies that own almost everything. Mm-hmm. But so then if you learn that story, you, you start to see the web uh, of what's happening. But you could go the other direction too. And you could say, okay, so I've learned that story. But what about the story of cow? Wait, where do cows come from? What are the oldest stories that we know about cows? Mm-hmm. So for the Cree uh, in Alberta, where I'm from, there's the story of white buffalo woman and how the relationship between buffalo and humans came. And boy, you don't know Buffalo in that area unless you know that story. Um, so you could learn that story and learn it really well. And then you start to see the, you know, how these things show up. So that's one thing is we can learn the story of the things we're buying. But here's the other thing that we can do is we can, in the way that we interact with that food, create more stories. So we can serve the food to people in a way that itself becomes a story and if you have something in your life that you think but the, here's the trouble i don't know the story of this at all i can't even remember where i got it where i found it i just it was in my house one day and i don't even know the story then i would say there's an obligation with that one one i mean enjoy it you know get some get some stories with that one but then at a certain point you give it away I mean, just for people to consider this, if you looked around your home, you think, what's the, what's everything here I don't know or remember the story of? And then you give that away. 
except your books, for the love of God, keep all your books. But I'm thinking of this example. Uh, there's a lady I, I, that I, I've heard some interviews with her and such. Uh, Jen is a friend. Is, is a, anyway, she's very into water. Yes, I know her. Yeah. And she speaks about how pipes disturb water. You know, they're not meant to be forced. Water's not meant to be forced down these pipes. Mm. It's meant to move in rivers and swirling patterns and so on. So then the water comes into the home and then there's, you can put it into something that'll put it into a vortex and you can filter it through earth and clay and such. And you kind of like, when I heard that, I thought it was, it, it's kind of like if a friend stumbles into your home, just got beat up, you know, and you oh, sit down, sit down, have some tea, you know, do you want to lie down? Uh, do you want to have a shower? You kind of help them to uh, get their sense back together. So it reminds me what you're speaking about with story yeah. is, you know, this tortilla comes into the home devoid of story. What are we going to do? I'll come in, you know, we'll put a bit of story on you. We'll do what we can, you know. Don't know your whole history, but we'll, I'm going to gift you to a friend. I'm going to put you with something else. I'm going to invite somebody over. It's like, you know, people talk about their mom's cooking, how it, it has something special in it. Because even if mom just got it from the grocery store, it's still, she's put some story into it yeah. at the last minute, you know, and given it. So there's something special to that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you serve your food, you have feasts. And you, you bring people together in such a way that when they leave, they have a story to tell. Mm. Um, when you give away gifts, you give it in such an outrageous way. And not probably not privately. You could do it with a group of people. So here's, here's the story. There were two young men on the land I live on. And they, we have chickens on the land I, I live on. And, and uh, it was the time to slaughter the chickens. And these two young men had never slaughtered chicken. One had killed an animal with a bow and arrow, but this is the first time up close with a knife, taking the neck, cutting the head off. And so the, the chickens were, there was these funnels, little kind of ice cream cones uh, attached to a tree. And the chickens are put in upside down so their necks stick out the bottom. And this kind of relaxes the chicken and, and immobilizes them. And so I saw them. Uh, and there was ceremony done before this and prayer said, and, you know, they took, they took the lives of these chickens and I thought, oh, this is so immense. Something has to happen to be, to, to mark this, to acknowledge this. So I went to the jewelry store in town and I got a couple of little silver, um, claspy, you know, little flexible chain bracelets. And the next night, uh, after dinner, I stood up and I said, so yesterday, these two boys did something very immense. And in doing so, they they uh, stole something from me. And, or they, I said, they, these two boys stole something the other day. And you might think I'm saying they stole the lives of those chickens, and that would be true. Because uh, that wasn't the idea of the chickens that morning when they woke up. Uh, so that was taken. I said, but they also, in doing this, stole from me the ability to see them only as boys anymore. So I'm not saying they're men, but I can't see them only as boys, given what they did. And so I said, I bought these bracelets and I, I put them down, I took them out, I put them down on the table. And I said, so these are for you. 
this is some acknowledgement of what you did for us, that you took life so that we could eat today. Mm. And if you pick up these bracelets, you're picking up a commitment to do something, which is 10 years from now. And so you have to do the math, number one, of how old you'll be then. But around 10 years from now, you will have to give these bracelets to some other young people who do something extraordinary that you think should be acknowledged. But keep it until then. And don't lose it. <laughs> these are expensive. And uh, they, they went to pick them up a little too fast. And uh, they, they should have thought about that. But that's young men for you. And um, and they went to put them on. I said, no, 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 no. And Joe, who is the fellow who lives on the land, uh, who led them through the process, I said, Joe, could you put them on? And if you have any words to say, say them now. And he didn't know that was coming. But he improvised, he picked them up, and he was the one who put on the bracelets. And he laid some blessings down on the boys and acknowledgement and just seeing their gifts. And and then that was that, you know. And so the something had happened, which is a story. But then, okay, how can we sort of fix this story in? And how can we give them something material that they can look at and remember the story? And they can pass on. I said, by the way, when you pass this on, it's not just, you know, oh, hey, a cool thing. Here's a bracelet, uh, you know, on the side, out of the side of your mouth while nobody's looking. I said, no, no, you have to stand up and speak like I'm doing right now. Mm. And you have to find a way to give it to them in a way that will create a story for them. And you have to tell the whole story of what happened on the, you know, leading up to you getting the bracelet. Well, a month passes and uh, the mother of one of the boys says, oh, my son wants to talk to you. And I'm confused why a teenager would want to talk to me. And so I think maybe I offended him. Maybe I'm in trouble in some way, I, you know. But he came by. And uh, any guesses why? He lost the bracelet. Mm. And he didn't know what to do. And so he came in and he sat, I, I, he sat down and he said, yeah, I lost the bracelet. And I said, okay, so what do you think should happen? And of course the instinct is just to say, well, that's okay. And, you know. Mm. But to take the consequence away. Mm. But then there's no story. Because then that's saying, well, that whole thing we did in the kitchen, it didn't really matter. It was just sort of a bit of a pantomime, you know, just for show. And mm. But I, so I said, well, what do you think we should do? He said, I, I don't know. <clears throat> and uh, then you're reminded he's 12. <laughs> mm. And I said, well, why are you telling me? He said, well, I just, I thought you gave it to me and I just thought you should know. You should know. I said, do you remember what you promised before you picked that up? And he did, and he remembered it really, really well. I said, okay, so you made a promise, and you have lost the means to fulfill that promise. And he said, yeah. I said, so here's what you do. You have to replace it, and I can't tell you what to replace it with. I said, you could go with a silver bracelet. It's not bad. I mean, they look good. I wouldn't blame you. Mm. But something, and that's up to you. I can't dictate to you what that will be. So what I'm doing is I'm putting the burden on him. And as an older man to a younger, you know, to a boy, I'm saying, I trust you. Mm. And that's an important message to give that you never say, but that is given. And I said, so you have figured it out. And I said, now when you give that, whatever you come up with, you have to include the story that you lost the original thing. Mm. That's now part of the story. So you see, it's not bad. It's just so. And so when you stand up, you have to say, you know, I killed this chicken and this older man. I barely knew him. And he gave these bracelets and, and told us that we had to give him. And here I am right now. 
with you to give it. And I want to give you that bracelet so bad, but I can't because I lost it. In spite of the fact that one of the very first things he said is, don't lose this. And I lost it. And I said, but you know, that taught me about bracelets and that certain clasps on these things are just not very tight and they can fall off. So I realized there are certain things that you don't wear every day. These are ceremonial and you bring them out just because they're so precious and they could fall off. And so you wear it in special occasions and you check your wrist a bunch. So maybe it's, I got you a similar kind of silver bracelet. And the thing I learned from this that I can tell you about the story of this kind of bracelet is this clasp is real wonky. So you got to really don't wear it all the time. This is not an everyday wear. So you see what I'm saying? There's so many then lessons in this story uh, that that younger person, the next one, picks up on and learns that the material things can break, that they can be lost, that they're precious. The thing I wish I'd done differently if I could do it again is told him this, and I probably will at some point, is told him the story of something I'd lost I've lost precious things of course mm. uh, just that he wouldn't have felt so alone like he was the only one who had ever lost something mm. precious mm. so that, that'll that come but so I'm, I'm just big on gift giving and that we can give mm. gifts in a way that when somebody says oh where did you get this beautiful plate mm-hmm. two hours later the story's finished mm. you know to their guest about this plate yeah. I, I just want to put something in quick on that that mm. with the food and uh, with other with other things as well, I'm getting the sense of a kind of different depths of story. Mm. So, you know, if I get something from the shop, I can add some, I can bring some story to it, uh, but it will be difficult to bring as much story to it as if it's something from the land. Because I'm really curious about this, is what you're speaking about, that kind of intentionality, that kind of recognition of violence, that kind of uh, gratefulness for death that sustains life. Can we bring some of that, some of that ceremonial sense into the mundane sphere of the supermarket yeah, right. and the airport and the gas station? Some of that sense to cross that boundary from the personal community ceremonial into the international supply chain, to bring some of that awareness into that it's place like- where it seems like it could never live. I don't know if I go with it that it's less meaningful mm. because we can't tie it back to the earth. Maybe just to add more to this is that we could look at story as a noun or as a verb. And as a noun, well, if you don't know the story, the full story of the thing, then you're just forever impoverished and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no redemption there because the story is gone. It's lost forever and that's it. Mm. And so now you are in a permanent state of poverty. But if we look at story as in to story something, how do we restory things? Then it's a verb. Then it's something we can enact. Because the reality is cultures have come and gone. Mm. And there's a lot of stories and languages that are, that's it. They're no more. So then is it just we're in a constant... um, cascading state of poverty that only gets worse because we keep losing things and you can never get and you can never get it back and there's no way so you're just always it's just in loss is that our 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 story as humans is is just a downward spiral Mm -hmm. uh that ends with zero wealth at all spiritually because we lost everything along the way started with a hundred yeah right um and so i i just don't i don't think so and for example there's a fellow Louis Cardinal, Cree fellow, a friend of mine, 
in Alberta. And he was telling me a story about a fellow named, I think it was Art Bernstick. And I probably have some of the details wrong, but if I recall right, Art was studying with a, a medicine person, an elder. And one day the elder, he was approaching the end of his days and he called Art in and he said, Art, he said, you, um, I've taught you all the ceremonies I know and you've learned them very well. And I've taught you the songs that go with those ceremonies and you've learned those well too. And I've taught you everything I know about the plants and you've learned all that well and the stories of those plants and you learned that too. He said, but there's something uh, that you're going to need moving forward uh, that I can't tell you. And that's all the ceremonies and the songs that you're going to need to make up and create Mm -hmm. that don't exist right now for the times that are coming. And so the human capacity for restoring, um, you know, what about, I mean, what, a, what an uh, incredible story to tell of here's this one with utterly mysterious origins. And we don't know where this one came from. We think this one had parents long ago. The names are forgotten. Mm-hmm. That's wow. That's mm-hmm. a story. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm not saying not get back to the land. I mean, that's the aim as much as possible. But we can and do restory uh, constantly. And so to me, the aim would be how do we become more and more skillful mm-hmm. at this restoring and redeeming of things and the um, the honoring of the journey mm-hmm. as far as we know. If that includes the yeah he lost a bracelet but now he's got the story of having lost the bracelet Mm -hmm. he's never going to be able to give another boy that bracelet but he'll be able to give the boy the story of having lost the bracelet Mm -hmm. so and that's pretty good Mm. Mm, i like that yeah it is it's a it is a beautiful it's a beautiful story of how it, there's so much re- restoration, so much restoration mm-hmm. in that and capacity for the story to grow and for it to deepen. And I, I think back, back, just bringing it back to your question of what, what can we do? How can we facilitate this process of restoring? And I love the idea of restoring as a, or story as a verb. To me, that makes so much sense. And I, I think one of the things that we've lost is is this capacity or this curiosity to hear each other's stories. Mm. And I, I know for myself, I, I, it, I'm just yearning to be more intentional with that and of gathering the stories of collecting the stories of those around me, um, children, grown adults, humans, you know, uh, can we can we make room? Can we ask questions? Can we can we honor um, and share a bit of our own in that process? As as Tad was saying, you know that you wish you could have shared your story to make there be some more humanness, not aloneness in it, right? And mm-hmm. and that feels so important. And we've lost that so much because we've said, you know. <sighs> It's almost like we're saying those stories aren't important, but I think we've just lost sight. We've lost space. We've lost that the kind of holders of the story, the the spaces that would allow for it, even that eating together, 
right? Mm -hmm. Where we gather and we tell those stories, we share the mm -hmm. stories, um, the campfire, the, the, just being in those kinds of environments that, that allows that to unfold in a more natural way and less, less, uh, less scripted and, and more space. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. The setting makes such a difference, doesn't it? I was chatting with a friend in the, in the supermarket the other day, we had to kind of like get out of the flow of traffic and off to the side. It's like, you could tell the place was not designed for chatting. Whereas, uh, salt spring last year in the market, so many talks, hours and hours, you know, just yeah. kind of go, you know, a little off to the side of the stalls and yeah. have the, you know, mm -hmm. big, deep, and meaningful. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the, the, the places, the design of it is like that. Yeah. Did you want to say something? With your, with your mothering, with your work? Yeah, I think that's where it lands for me the most is with my mothering. You know, I have such a strong mother bear instinct as many mothers do. And I'm having had to come out of so many of my own spells that have been spoken for generations um, just in the society and in my family systems. You know, it, the weight of working through that has been immense. And now I'm in this place, you know, where I, I feel like I'm hopefully on this path of seeing things a little more clearly through story. And now my curiosity lies in how do I create this context for my daughter to be able to receive a story and to build some, um, I'm not quite sure what the word I'm looking for, but to protect her in a way from having those spells land on her. And that is, that is the question, you know, and, and how do we revillage and how do we create this culture that just is not there so that the next generation has a bit better of a chance hmm. of um, receiving the medicine from the story. Yeah, that's, yeah, beautiful. It's, I, I'm reminded of near the beginning of our talk, we're talking about teachings, you know, the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. compared to a story and a story as being kind of like an ecosystem. You know, it's like, well, why don't you try wandering into uh, the forest over there mm -hmm. and see what you find? It's, well, you know, you don't, you, <laughs> you may find all kinds of wonderful things and lessons and people will find different things and the whole thing is supportive and rich with lessons. Mm -hmm. And it feels like a story is like that. And of course, stories connect with other stories. They don't have these hard borders. Mm -hmm. Stories overlap with each other all the time. And uh, you can kind of like get this context of life and fill out your understanding mm -hmm. and your possible range of thought and emotion and being. I mean, like some of Sharon Blackie's stories, she'll there's there's a story of a, of a of a bard this beautiful bard who brought a woman who'd gone wild with grief and had become like a monster to killing all the knights that bard through his music and his personal beauty brought her back and married her when i heard that story i'm like that can be a brave man it opens something it's like it's like somebody said oh Look at that region over there. You can wander over there and there's a beautiful arbutus tree and a view of the ocean. I'm like, I can go there. Mm. I can go there. Mm. I can. Uh, that's part of part of where mm. I can go. So it feels like that with stories. And we were talking yesterday, we were all chatting about yeah. permission. Mm. There's a sense of permission, like, oh, we can, mm. 
inhabit that, that the range of, of possible human beingness becomes much wider. So yeah. I, I, I feel quite satisfied. I wanted to just put it out to all of you, uh, just at the end, if there's any, any last thing you wanted to add on this. Yeah. Well, one last thought is um, there's something about etiquette and stories mm. that, of course, one of the things that can happen when you, uh, I don't know, you start to get hip to this cultural thing and, uh, mm. oh man, I listened to Daniel Four on a podcast on ancestral medicine and I'm going to get into that. And then I heard about, you know, all these mythologists and folklore and all these reculturing things. Uh, I remember, remember I was at a Planet Organic in Edmonton grocery store, and I tried some of the, uh, the kefir, the dairy kefir, and it's it's got that effervescence, the almost carbonated. I live off that stuff. Okay, <laughs> and I tried it, and it had that, and I thought it had gone bad. So I went to somebody in the store, and I said, "So the um, this went bad." And he said, "Oh no, what do you mean?" I said, it, "It's like it's carbonated or something. It, it almost hurt when I." He said, oh, that's the Chapansky effect. That's supposed to happen. I said, oh, well, then then um, that's terrible then. And uh, <laughs> But I thought I'd give it another try. I thought, okay, if that's how it's supposed to be, I'll give it another try. And I tried it, and then I, I lived off that for weeks. I couldn't get enough. I was so hungry for it. Yeah. And I think this is so true. When people mm -hmm. discover the real thing, this hunger gets lit up to to devour. I remember, oh, boy, when I first really discovered my Celtic roots, I must have been unbearable because every room I was in, Celtic music went on loud. <laughs> it just had to be there all the time. And I was reading everything. I was just devouring. Yes. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, hunger doesn't always lead to good etiquette. Mm -hmm. And so then, then you hear the stories, you know, it's the white people and they, they just discover culture. And first they think that the only real culture can come from uh, brown people. It can't come from white people, so it got to go to some other indigenous tribe. And the etiquette is terrible mm -hmm. because they're being driven by mad by this hunger. Uh, it, you know, It wasn't as bad at some level when they didn't know they were so hungry. They just thought, oh, this pain in my stomach is because I'm a terrible person and, and uh, yeah, I'm being punished for my sins or whatever the rationalization is for the symptom. Like My brother had a friend, he was a stand-up comedian, and he said, um, they were talking about drugs they tried. And this other comedian said, yeah, I tried crack once. <laughs> and he said, oh, man. So how was that? The greatest experience of my life. And he, he said, he said well, how, how come you're not hooked? And he said, it's a funny story. He The next day he woke up craving waffles, of all things. Just had to have waffles. But it was so busy during his days. And he said, oh, I can't get to the IHOP. Three or four days later, he gets the IHOP and oh man, gets this big stack of waffles and all the whipped cream and the berry. And he just, and it's, you know, it's like you've been fasting for a week and you've been dreaming about this one particular, and there it is. And he polishes it off. Oh man, this finishes off the plate, wipes it clean, and he's still craving waffles at the end. Mm. And then he realized, oh, somehow his brain wired up the craving for this drug. He changed it for waffles. And he said, if I'd realized that what I was craving was crack, I'd be on the street right now. Wow. So anyways, the brain can do this. It can 
maybe protect us from the craving. Mm. But then when you realize what it's really for, and but in this case, in a healthy way, in a tonic way, not a toxic way, will the consequence of what you eat and what you're craving probably be better for you? But will the consequences of your craving be better for what you're approaching and eating? Mm. For the one you come across, well, cut to ayahuasca ceremonies everywhere and people indiscriminately um you know harvesting and now them running short on the supply of that and all the stores selling their sage bundles but they don't harvest it in a good way and they over harvest and on and on mm-hmm. so w- there's immense consequence to the one that we claim to admire this medicine or this mm-hmm. culture you know white people show up uh and bring their insanity with them to these to these societies and it has consequence on the society and there's a whole conversation we go on to there but so there's something about etiquette and that when Mm -hmm. culture appears on our doorstep uh, or the wounded appear and the cultureless appear on our doorstep that we don't maul them Mm -hmm. with hunger or with curiosity Um, and there's this poem by Naomi Shihab Nye called Red Brocade and this is um from the Arabs, but it's the boy, this is you can find this in folklore all across um, Europe as well. Uh, this practice of hospitality. So it's just an invitation, I think, for all of us to slow our roll, mm. to know that we're hungry, and to just <laughs> chill. Um, and it goes like this: The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where he's headed. That way he'll have strength enough to answer. Or by then, you'll be such good friends you don't care. Let's go back to that. Rice? Pine nuts? Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone put on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is coming. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. Mm. Yeah. And so it can be like that. That when we come across someone or something that is so bereft of story, that or that is so rich in story, either way, there's an acknowledgement you have come a long way to be here. Mm. So though I want to know everything, or I want to tell you everything, Let's eat some food first. And let's come to each other through that food. And maybe we could, I could tell you the story of the food I'm serving you. And that story of the food and the food could be a medium through which we slowly get to know each other. Hmm. I just want to say thank you. I'm just so grateful for the conversation we've had now and that we've had in the time surrounding this. And I think that's such a big part of it is having these conversations. Mm. And I think that's restoring is about, it's about too. It comes about in that way. And that's a beautiful, beautiful poem Mm. to capture Mm. what we've been talking about. Yeah. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, tomorrow. Thank you, dear listener. And with this, we close.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can share it with a friend, give a review, and especially become a paid subscriber on Substack. Links in the show notes. Until next time.